Why don't you open your Bibles to Ephesians 5? And I'll pray. Father, I pray for this time as we discuss husbands loving their wives and what that looks like. And none of us can ever feel like we've arrived as husbands with Christ as our standard. So help all of us, myself included, to grow in this area. And I pray you'd just be revealing those areas as husbands that we, uh, those weaknesses and, and areas that we can grow. And I pray for the wives here to be sensitive and praying for their husbands, even during the message. And I uh, just thank you for this instruction in your word that you've given us graciously to help us have marriages that are a blessing to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So unfortunately, our world has ruined a biblical understanding of, of many words, not just love, but love's probably the one that's ruined most. It's like if you think of the word patient. In Scripture, patient means enduring or persevering. But in the world, patient just means you're, you... Um, can wait at a red light really well, you know, or stand in line really well. <clears throat> well, love is ruined because it's presented as a feeling or emotion over which we have no control. We have uh, ruined the word so much that we have personified it as a baby that flies around with a bow and arrow, right? And he, he shoots you, and, if, and it's so accidental or so arbitrary that you get shot by this arrow, and then you fall in love with someone. And because we're convinced that we can fall in love with someone. We've also become convinced that we can do what? Fall out of love, that's right. And so that's why a man could come home from work and he could tell his wife, you know, I didn't mean to fall into this, in love with this woman. I just kept running into her in the break room or passing her in the hallway or we'd have these conversations. And the next thing you know, I have fallen in love with her. Or a wife tells her husband, you know, I didn't mean for this to happen, but I just don't feel like I love you anymore. Well, Scripture presents love as a choice. It's something we have complete control over, which is why Christ can even tell us to love who? Love our enemies, yeah. If, if love was feelings or emotions we don't have any control over, we couldn't be told to love our enemies. But because love is a choice, we can even be told to love our enemies. In Ephesians 5.25, it says the husbands are to love their wives just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for her. So as husbands, were commanded to love our wives with the same sacrificial, selfless love that Christ demonstrates for his bride. And so Christ gave everything he had, including his own life, for the sake of the church, and that's the standard of sacrifice that we're to have for our wives. The Greek word for love, it's agape, which is an unconditional love. And if you notice in the verse, the, there's no if. Does that make sense? If you read Ephesians 5.25, you can read it a thousand times, and it's never going to contain the word if. It doesn't say, husbands, love your wives if. It's unconditional. It's not remotely conditional on the wife. And so that's why, as husbands, we're commanded to love our wives even if they don't respect us or mistreat us or are rude to us or don't love us in return. We're, we're still expected to love when it's unreciprocated, because that's the way that Christ himself has loved us. And so if I'm, you know, upset with my wife, Katie, then that's what I need to remind myself of, that God has commanded me to love her regardless of what she has or hasn't done or regardless of how she has or hasn't acted toward me. Now, because Ephesians 5.25 is the command for husbands, it kind of begs the question why there are any verses to follow. Why doesn't it just end right here? Well, the reason is that verse 25 is the command, but then the following verses tell us what it looks like to obey the command. Let me say that one more time. So Ephesians 5.25 gives us the command, but then the following verses describe what it looks like to obey this command. And why would we need that described for us? Well, if you asked 100 people what it looks like for a husband to love his wife, how many different answers do you think you're going to get? Probably 100 different answers, right? If you ask people in the world what it looks like for a husband to love his wife, you probably you might be told things like buy her expensive jewelry or take her to fancy restaurants or bring her on an exotic vacation or make sure she lives in a really impressive home. And so the world largely says that a husband loving his wife looks like materialism, buying her expensive stuff. And so there's an important point to keep in mind as we begin we can be failing as husbands in the world's eyes while we're striving to please God. In other words, 
if I made it even simpler, we could look like a good husband in God's eyes while looking like a bad husband in the world's eyes because God does not define love the same way that the world does. And conversely, someone could look like a good husband in the world's eyes. People could look on that husband and think, wow, what a wonderful husband because he does all these things for his wife. But if they're not the things that God wants him doing, then he's a displeasing husband in the Lord's eyes. Now, our concern is to be good husbands in God's eyes. So that's what we want to talk about. And I have good news and I have bad news. So the good news, brothers, is that we don't have to go out and buy our wives lots of really expensive stuff. That's not what it means for us as husbands to love our wives. We don't have to take them on some number of vacations or spend some amount of money on them. That's the good news. But can you guess what the bad news is? The bad news is doing what God wants is much harder than that. There is a reason that many husbands would rather spend money on their wives because it's easier than the sacrificial, selfless love that God commands of us. So back to the question, what does it look like for husbands to love their wives as God commands? Look at verse 26 to start to see that answer. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And this brings us to lesson one. So this would be page five in your handouts. Husbands love their wives by washing them with the word. Husbands love their wives by washing them with the word. Okay, brothers, so there's really no way around this. This verse shows us being at least partially responsible for our wives' sanctification. Now, when I say that, that should sound very sobering. It, it feels very sobering to me just saying it. That means that someday my wife, Katie, is going to stand before the Lord and I am going, she is a free moral agent. I'm not completely responsible for her sanctification, but I am at least partially responsible for her sanctification, for the woman who stands before the Lord someday. We're told how this sanctification takes place through washing by the word of God. Think of Jesus's words, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So brothers, I want to address you directly. There are several ways that we can wash our wives with the word through consistent church attendance. And sadly, that seems to me about as foundational and basic as you can get, just going to a Bible teaching church on the Lord's Day with your brothers and sisters in Christ for worship. But sadly, there are some men who don't even prioritize that or don't even do that regularly. And ladies, if you sit here, and let, let, another thing that, you're, that a husband can do is take his wife to a marriage conference like this. So ladies, give me your attention. I wanted to share something important with you, and I mean this sincerely. If you have not yet thanked your husband for taking time out of his life to bring you to this marriage conference, you need to do that. If you, have, if you can sit on Sunday at a church that is preaching God's word and look to your side and see your husband there, you need to thank your husband for that. Because I know plenty of wives who would love to be in your position. I know that there are plenty of wives whose husbands would not take them to a marriage conference like this. And I know that there are plenty of wives who either have to go to church by themselves or they don't go to church at all because their, their husband would never set foot in a church. And so ladies, do not take this for granted. There's a lot of other places that your husband can be. And I bet I'll share something else. I mean, I, I, I confess this is just a suspicion. But there are probably some number of women out there who did ask their husbands to take them to a marriage conference and those husbands wouldn't do it. And so if you can sit here and your husband is with you, you need to appreciate that he is being a spiritual leader and you need at some point put your hand on his leg, look him in the eyes and say, thank you for investing in our marriage. Thank you for being concerned about my sanctification. Participation in Bible study, Sunday school classes, home fellowships, these are all places that allow a husband to have his wife being exposed to the word of God. Who was it that was just talking to me about driving in a car and they were listening to, uh, was it Eric? Is Eric in here right now? Eric was talking to me. Where is he? Were you talking to me about just driving in your car, listening to the word of God or listening to, uh, just having a conversation with someone? I, I think most of us probably take for granted how incredibly blessed we are 
when contrasted with pretty much everyone throughout human history. How many people throughout human history or even people in the parts of the world today don't even have access to God's word? If you can take your phone, if the gentleman who was with the radio station, he, there's an app that you can turn on and there, you have access to thousands of incredible Bible teachers. I mean, it's an unprecedented time in human history that we live in regarding the exposure we have to God's word. There's people in the world today, have you seen those videos of people that get the Bible for the first time and they're just sobbing over having that in their hands? And we can just go to our phones and just press a button and you're listening to a sermon by John MacArthur or you're listening to Kevin DeYoung or, or uh, whoever it is you happen to like listen to, thousands of different people to, to choose from. It really is incredible. <clears throat> now, regarding sanctifying your wife with the word of God, there's no way around this. We need to be reading the word with our wives. We'll talk more about this tomorrow, but we need to be reading the word with, your wife, with our wives. Now, some, and I'll talk more to the wives tomorrow about how a wife can help her husband as in his spiritual leadership. Now, ladies, you have no idea the important part you play in your husband's spiritual leadership. You have no idea how encouraging or discouraging you can be to him. Now, brothers, if you're looking at me and I say, you need to read the word with your wife and you say, well, you know, Pastor Scott, I'm not, I don't really know if I can read the word with my wife. If you can read, you can read the word with your wife. Okay, brothers, it doesn't have to be a sermon. It doesn't have to be a Billy Graham crusade. It just has to be, we're going to read this verse and then the next verse, we might talk about it or we might just read through some verses together. But when I look here and it says that a husband's going to sanctify and cleanse his wife with the washing of water by the word, I don't see any way around the need for a husband to be reading the word at times with his wife. The bottom line is make God's word a priority. I'm not going to say that Christians can't have televisions. I'm not going to pry into your your homes too much. I'm not going to say you can't have subscriptions to uh, movie services or something like that. But I am just going to invite you to consider what brings your family together most often. Is it God's word or, or prayer or some other profitable family time, even just talking about your day, or is it something like, you know, a television or the, or the movies or something like that, some other activity? <clears throat> the fact that husbands are called to sanctify and cleanse their wives tells us something about our responsibility as husbands, and this brings us to lesson two. Lesson two, husbands love their wives by setting the standard for holiness in the home. Lesson two, husbands love their wives by setting the standard for holiness in the home. And just think about this logically, brothers. If God is holding us at least partially responsible for our wives' sanctification, then we must set the standard for holiness in the home. It is not our wives' responsibility. So this means that our wives should never have to fight us to have a holier home. This means that husbands are responsible for what comes into the home and what influences the home. So brothers, this means that we are responsible for what our families watch, what our families listen to, how our families talk, the jokes that our families might tell, the company that our family keeps, how our family dresses, and, and it's not to say, like, in our home, I, Katie is generally more responsible for the modesty uh, with our daughters, which is a battle in, in our home at, at times as well. But it's, I'm still, as the head of the household, it's still my responsibility to make sure that the, if one of my daughters is dressing immodestly, that, someone, that it is being addressed with her. We're responsible as, as men with how our families spend their time, what our family does recreationally, our family's involvement in the local church. Now, without getting specific, I will say, which I'd like to believe you'd all agree with me, that there are definitely some movies that should not come into our home. There's some music that should not be in our home. There's some clothing that should not be in our home, some jokes that shouldn't be told in our home, language that should not be used in our home, activities that should not be in our home. And if any of these things do come into our homes, it is not our wives' responsibility to remove those things from our home. As the spiritual leaders or the head of the household, the, the men who are partially responsible for our wives' sanctification, it is on our shoulders to make sure those things are removed. 
A man who loves and sanctifies his wife keeps out anything that's going to be detrimental to her sanctification. A husband who cares about his wife's sanctification is never going to allow something to come into the home that is negatively going to affect his wife's sanctification. Now, I'll share something with you that's very unfortunate. As a pastor and, as, and a speaker at conferences like this, rarely do I hear husbands complaining about their wives' holiness. But I do hear wives complaining about their husbands' holiness. In other words, I rarely hear husbands saying, I can't believe what my wife watches, or I can't believe the way my wife talks, or I can't believe the things my wife looks at. But I do hear wives saying those things about their husbands. Similarly, I don't often hear men say, my wife won't go to church with me, or my wife won't pray with me, or my wife won't join this home fellowship with me. But I do frequently hear wives saying those things about their husbands. It just seems to me, and I don't, I don't know why God, I have a guess, which I'll share in just a moment, why it's this way, but it, it, God is, because God has called men to be leaders in their relationship, you would expect them to be the most spiritual, but frequently I see that a woman, a wife tends to be the more spiritual between the two in their relationship. So why did God allow it to be this way? And this is my guess. Because the moment that a man wants to lead, what's he going to find in his wife? Excitement. Thankfulness. He's going to be able to look over and see a wife who's thrilled about her husband being or becoming a spiritual man. So it is a real tragedy that husbands are called to be spiritual leaders when wives feel like their husbands aren't occupying that role. Look at verse 27. As Paul continues explaining what it looks like for husbands to love their wives, he says that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So this is reminiscent of the previous verse in that it's describing the sanctifying and cleansing work that Jesus does with the church. But Paul does something else with this verse. Notice the words that he might present her to himself that he might present her to himself. There's a profound truth here that I want to make sure we don't miss. This is directly related to verse 26. So verse 27 says that Christ does what he does in verse 26, sanctifying and cleansing the church, so that he can receive the glorious church described in verse 27 that doesn't have spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but is holy and without blemish. And so here's the simplest way to say it. Christ gets the church that he prepares for himself. Do you guys see that in the verses there? Christ does what he does in verse 26 to receive the church in verse 27. Christ gets the church that he prepares for himself. But because Christ's relationship with the church is the picture for husbands' relationships with their wives, what else is this saying? It's saying the husbands, this is lesson three, husbands get the wives they prepare for themselves. Husbands get the wives they prepare for themselves. Because this passage is about marriage, just as Jesus gets the church that he prepares for himself, husbands also get the wives that they prepare for themselves. Everything that is said about husbands, about Christ in this passage, is to be said or applied to husbands. And so if Christ does this to get a sanctified and cleansed church, then the point is husbands are to be doing that to get a sanctified and cleansed wife. Wives respond very well to love, to holiness, to obedience to God's word. If we as husbands treat our wives forgivingly, lovingly, tenderly, gently, what kind of wives do we tend to have in return? Wives that are more loving, gentle, forgiving, tender. If we treat our wives unforgivingly, harshly, cruelly, we usually find ourselves with wives that are harsher, crueler, more unforgiving, or more unloving themselves. There was this one time Katie and I were having this argument, and I've known her, we went to, we grew up together in Northern California, I've known her a lot of my life, and she said to me, she was upset, and she's listened to me preach these messages at marriage conferences numerous times. She can, she can finish many of my sentences, and so she said, 
and this is a really hard thing to hear, but I wasn't like this until I married you, or I didn't have this weakness until I married you. She was making the point that being married to me had made her worse in this area, that I had, this weakness of mine had rubbed off on her, and she was, she was right about it, and she pointed this out. She said, you know, in that message, you're the one who tells husbands, you go around the country and you tell husbands that they get the wives they prepare them for themselves, where you're, you're getting the wife that you've prepared for yourself. I'm worse in this area because of you. And that was like, ugh, incredibly convicting, but it was good for me to hear because she was right about that. Earlier I said that husbands are heavily involved in their wives' sanctification, and another way to think of it is husbands are heavily involved in the wives that we get for ourselves. And the reason is simple. If we as husbands are sanctifying and cleansing our wives, we're going to end up with sanctified and cleansed wives. So there are really two great reasons as a husband to be a spiritual leader. First, because it's one of the largest responsibilities we have, and God's going to hold us accountable for that. But the other reason that we should strive to be spiritual leaders is so that we have spiritually mature wives in return. What does it look like to have a more spiritually mature wife? Well, if you have a more spiritually mature wife, you're going to have a wife who produces more of the fruit of the Spirit gentleness, Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What husband would not want more of those fruit produced in his wife's life? You know, no, no husband has ever come into my office with his head in his hands and gone, oh, I just can't handle it anymore. My wife is just producing too much love and patience and gentleness and kindness in her life. You know, that just doesn't, that doesn't happen. What, what we want to see from our wives is what we can see if we will be spiritual leaders to them. Now think of the other side of this. If a husband doesn't, doesn't lead his wife well spiritually and he has a wife who's less mature, or in other words, what's on the other side of the spectrum from the fruit of the Spirit? You've got it the, you've, in Galatians 5, you've got the fruit of the Spirit and then you've got the works of the flesh. So where a more spiritually mature wife will be producing the fruit of the Spirit, a more spiritually immature wife will be producing more works of the flesh. And what husband wants to see more of that in his wife? Outbursts, works of the flesh are evident. Here's a few of them. Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissension. How many husbands see behaviors in their wives because they've been poor spiritual leaders? How many wives might be more spiritually mature if their husbands were nurturing them spiritually, praying for them, reading the Bible with them? Tragically, men have come into my office and, uh, and they sit across from me and they begin just talking terribly about their wives to me. And they want, I suspect, me to almost like you know, put my hand on their shoulder and kind of pat them and say, wow, I can't, I can't believe how difficult it must be being married to such a terrible woman. I'm so sorry that you're with this ungodly woman and she would act that wickedly to you. And what a saint you must be to put up with a wife who's, who's so terrible. But what he doesn't know is that the whole time that he's talking terribly about his wife, he's making himself look bad to me. That the worse he talks about his wife, the worse he looks to me, because as I'm listening to him, Describe his wife. In my mind, I'm thinking, would your wife really be acting this way if you were faithfully taking her to church, if you were reading God's word with her, if you were praying with her, if you were sanctifying and cleansing her with the word of God? What you sound like you're describing is a woman who has not been led well spiritually by her husband, who has not been sanctified and cleansed by God's word. So who ultimately benefits from a wife's sanctification and spiritual maturity? The wife benefits, but the husband sure benefits as well. Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This applies to many areas of the Christian life, including a husband's relationship with his wife. As husbands, we generally reap what we sow in marriage. If we will invest in our wives, sow seeds of love and interest, we reap, we'll reap what we've sown. Now look at verse 28. It says, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's interesting. Why does it say that a husband who loves his wife loves himself? Why would it say that? Because a husband who loves his wife, like these verses are describing, is loving himself in a sense. He is doing himself a great service 
by sanctifying and cleansing the woman that he's spending his life with. The verse is also saying that husbands must love our wives as much as we love ourselves, and this brings us to lesson four. Husbands love their wives by being as concerned about them as they are about themselves. Husbands lo- lesson four, husbands love their wives by being as concerned about them as they are about themselves. Briefly take your minds back to the first marriage. What was Adam's response when he first saw Eve? If you don't remember, it's not a big deal, but does anyone remember what, what, what he said? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now just follow me, follow me for a moment. Adam knew that Eve had come from him. And so looking at Eve was like looking at what? Himself. Loving Eve was like loving himself. When Adam cared for Eve's body, he was literally, not figuratively, literally caring for his own body because her body had been his body only moments earlier. And that's what Paul wrote in these verses. And it's obvious that Paul had Adam and Eve in mind. Look in verse 28, he says, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And then notice this, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Why does he say no one ever hated his own flesh? Because he's expecting us as husbands to be looking at our wives the way that Adam looked at Eve as extensions of ourselves. We're not going to hate our wives because we don't hate our own flesh and we should see our wives as extensions of ourselves. The connection between Adam and Eve becomes even clearer in verse 30 and 31. He says, we're members of his body, his flesh and bones. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Adam said. She's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a quote of Genesis 2.24. Does anyone think it's interesting that the first time it says that a man would leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife was from the man who didn't have earthly father and mother? And so the point is, Genesis 2.24 was not written about Adam or for him. It was for all of the other relationships that would follow. So here's the point. Adam saw Eve as a part of himself and as husbands. We must see our wives as parts of ourselves. Adam cared for Eve. He was nourishing and cherishing her body, as the verse says, and he was literally taking care of his own body, and as husbands were to nourish and cherish our wives as our own bodies. And of course, Adam would take care of Eve if he saw her as an extension of himself, Because verse 29 says, nobody hates his own flesh, instead nourishes and cherishes it. And so when we as husbands think of the way that Adam took care of Eve, we should strive to take care of our wives the same. So brothers, let me ask you some questions that convict me. Are we as concerned about how our wives are doing as we are about how we are doing? Are we as concerned about how much sleep our wives are getting as we are about how much sleep we're getting? Are we as concerned about how our wife is doing when she's sick as we are about ourselves when we're sick? Are we as concerned about our wives overworking themselves as we are about overworking ourselves? Now let's talk about what any husband would be willing to do, and then we'll talk about what God wants husbands to do. Many many men will proclaim that if there was someone broke into their house, they would jump before any bullets that were like bearing down on their wife. Any man would be willing to jump in front of that speeding car and take the, and, be, and be hit by that car if it meant sparing his wife's life. But, in other words, men will say, I'm willing to lay down my life for my wife. But what does God really want us doing? Not that momentary situation that more than likely will never come. He wants us daily laying down our lives for our wives daily thinking about our wives and what's best for them. And so what does it look like practically? It looks like sacrifice. As husbands, we should be willing to give up many things that we wouldn't have to give up if we didn't have a wife. And so sometimes young men come to talk to me, or sometimes I think fathers in the church might send young men to talk to me. If a young man is interested in his daughter, that father might send the young man to talk to me. And I, because I get the question enough, how do I know if I'm ready to be married? A young man will ask me that. Well, if he, I'll tell him, are you willing to give up anything that would be a threat to loving your wife the way that God commands? 
Is there anything in your life that would prevent your wife from being the supreme relationship? Do you have anything in your life that would make your wife feel like second place? And you're not willing to give that up. If you're not willing to give that up, then you're not ready to be married yet. So what, what might you have to sacrifice being married? It could be sleep, could be free time, sports, video games, television, time with friends, anything that prevents a man from loving and caring for his wife the way that we love and care for ourselves. And this brings us to lesson five, part one. Wives must feel like the supreme relationship in their husband's life. Wives must feel like the supreme relationship in their husband's life. Okay, I deliberately worded the lesson this way for a reason. I just want you to notice that I said wives must feel like the supreme relationship in their husband's life versus saying wives must be the supreme relationship in their husband's life. And here's why. Picture this scenario. A couple comes in for counseling and a wife says, I don't feel like first place in my husband's life or to maintain the same language as this lesson. The wife says, I don't feel like the supreme relationship in my husband's life. Well, what does the husband say? He says, yeah, of course you're the supreme relationship. There's nothing more important than you. So now it's about what the husband claims versus being about the way the wife feels. And so I found myself so frequently in counseling having to deal with the way people feel versus what other people claim. So if I were the lesson this way, it's not, what, it's not about what a husband says. It's not about whether a husband proclaims his wife as a supreme relationship in his life. It's about whether the wife feels that way. Look back at verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is making an incredibly strong statement about the wife's position in her husband's life. The reason a young man's father and mother are mentioned is they're the most important relationship in a young man's life. And so God is arguing from the greater to the lesser. So if someone looked at this wrong, it would be if someone wanted to look at this wrongly, they would say this. They would say, well, it just says that I have to leave father and mother. It doesn't say that I have to leave these other things. That's looking at it wrongly. The point is almost the opposite. The idea is if a young man is expected to leave his father and mother for his wife, there's nothing he shouldn't be willing to leave or forsake for his wife. God is arguing the greater to the lesser by pointing out the greatest thing that a man should be willing to leave for his wife, his own parents. And so the idea is if he's expected to leave his own parents, then there's nothing that he should not be willing to leave or forsake. Second only to a husband's relationship with Christ, his relationship with his wife must be the supreme relationship in his wife. A wife should never feel threatened by anyone or anything in her husband's life. She should never feel like second place to anyone or anything in her husband's life. She should never feel like her husband has a relationship with anyone or anything that's more important than his relationship with her. And here's what I've noticed. When wives feel like second place, it frequently is not to another woman. I'm not denying adultery occurring. I'm not denying some men having inappropriate relationships with women. But I'm just saying most of the time when I deal with women who feel like second place to something in their husband's life, it is not another woman. It is sports, television, cars, poker night, alcohol, friends, work, hobbies, video games, education, could even be children. We must make our wives feel supreme even over our children. I love my, you know, we have, not, we have nine kids. And so one of the questions I've had uh, over the years is one of the children comes and says, well, who do you love most? And I said, well, that's super easy. Your mother, right? But the kids do need to know that they, their mother is loved more than any of them. I know two wives who felt like second place to, believe it or not, their husbands, water skiing and horses. There's one gentleman and he had a water ski lake that he had built behind his house and his wife hated it because she knew that he would rather spend time water skiing on that lake than being with him. And there was another wife who hated her husband's horses because she knew that she, he would rather spend time with those horses than spend time with her. 
So someone could easily say, well, Pastor Scott, you're being so legalistic. Are you saying that God's word forbids a man from having a, a ski lay, water skiing and horses? No, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what the Bible forbids. But the Bible does forbid anything that becomes more important than a man's wife. That's what the Bible forbids. And so anytime that something is occupied, that position of supremacy in a man's life is when, the, is when the man is doing something that Scripture forbids. He's made his wife feel like second place. And so, brothers, this means that some men have liberties that other men don't. For example, I don't, I don't like working on cars. I pay money to get people to work on my vehicles. I don't know how to do it, and I don't have any interest in working on vehicles. So for me, I have the liberty, if I wanted, although it sounds incredibly unattractive, to purchase an old car, and then what do you call it? What do you call it when a man makes it into a newer car? See, I'm so bad, I don't even know what it's called. Huh? Restoring, that's the word. Thank you very much, up front. Restore a car. I have the liberty to restore a car because if I bought it, it would just sit there and I would do no restoration. But let's say there's another man and he wants to restore a car. And so every free evening or free minute, he's out in the garage working on this car. Well, pretty soon, his wife is not even going to be able to walk past the garage without looking at that car and making this face. She's just going to despise that car because every time she looks at it, it's like the other woman. Or it's the object that has taken the place of supremacy in his life. And so my point is, some men are going to have liberties that other men don't. The second husband is not going to be able to say, well, so-and-so works on his car, so I should be able to work on mine. It's not a problem for the other husband, but it is a problem for this man. If it's a problem for him, then he doesn't have the liberty that the other man does have. So as husbands, we never want to let our wives feel inferior to anything. And picture something for a moment. A wife says, I don't feel like I'm the supreme relationship in your life. There's this other thing that's more important to me. And so her husband says, okay, I'll go ahead and I'll get my priorities in order and I'll just do that less. The husband almost always fails for a reason I want to discuss, and this brings us to the next part of lesson five. Lesson five, part one, wives must feel like the supreme relationship of their husband's life. Part two, which can take completely removing things from the husband's life. Wives must feel like the supreme relationship in their husband's life, which can take completely removing things from the husband's life. Sometimes a wife becomes second place to something that shouldn't be completely removed from her husband's life. For example, work. Some men can be workaholics, and he can't remove work from his... The solution isn't to put off work and to put on laziness. Like Jesus talks about the ruthlessness or severity that must be exhibited towards sin. It's hyperbole, right? We don't literally pluck out our eye or cut off our hand like he said, but he was making the point that we must be very ruthless or severe with sin. And so if a man, if a woman feels like she's second place to her husband's job, the solution is not for him to stop working completely. The solution might be for him to get a different job. I'm not saying he necessarily has to, but if there was another job that would allow him to prioritize his family, maybe that would be the case. If a husband is overly involved in the church, he probably needs to serve in moderation. The solution would not be to stop going to church completely. So in some situations, this sort of balance is reasonable. But what if it's a hobby that's an addiction? What if it's something that can be removed completely? You've got a husband whose actions have demonstrated that he has an unhealthy relationship to something. He can't engage in it in a balanced or moderate way. And now it's become a sin and it should be removed completely from his life. It should be elimination versus moderation. And I mention this because too often in counseling, I've witnessed a wife's pain associated with what her husband is doing. And the husband says this, you're right, I'm sorry, I'll get my priorities in order, I'll keep things in balance. From now on, I will do this only in moderation. That is pretty much a recipe for disaster. The husband's going to start off well, his wife's going to be happy for a few weeks, but then slowly, whatever made her feel like second place is slowly going to creep back into his life, reclaiming that position of supremacy. So if the husband wanted to be honest, he might as well say something like this. Things are going to change superficially for a few weeks, but before long, they're going to go right back to the way they were before. You're going to be feeling even worse, though, because you'll see me fail again, increasing your confidence that things are never going to change. And so the real solution is for the husband to get that addiction out of his life completely, put his wife in her rightful place, 
make her his queen, show her she's a supreme relationship in his life, and then enjoy the blessing of an improved marriage, enjoy the blessing of a healthier, happier wife, a wife and possibly children who see the sacrifice the husband made and love and respect him that much more for it. Now, ladies, let me have your attention for a moment because I want to ask you something. First, if you see your husband give up something for you, what should you not say to him? You shouldn't say, well, it's about time. You shouldn't say, well, man, what took you so long? You shouldn't say, well, Jennifer's husband probably gave this up when he was 12. What should you say? Thank you so much for the sacrifice you made. This means so much to me. I know that few husbands love their wives and the Lord enough to do what you're doing. The second question. We've been talking about husbands loving their wives unconditionally. But can you make it easier for your husband to love you like Christ loved the church? Let me say this one more time, ladies. Give me your attention for a moment. I'm I'm trying to set what I think is a high biblical standard for your husband's love. It's not conditional. The word if is not in Ephesians 5.25. But even though your husband is commanded to love you unconditionally, let me say it like this. Can you make it easier for your husband to obey that command? Can you be more lovable? There have been, just to be candid with you, there have been situations where I've been places and I have looked at wives, I've looked at the way they've acted, the way that they've talked to their husbands or treated others. There's women in the church. And I have thought, I cannot imagine how incredibly difficult it would be to love that woman. I cannot imagine how difficult it would be to be her husband and be commanded to obey Ephesians 5.25 with a woman like that. And so ladies, even though I'm talking about your husband being commanded to love you unconditionally, strive to make that an easier command for him to obey. Think about the Proverbs, Proverbs 31, verse 11. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. So ladies, that would be a wife that's easier to love. Strive to be like that toward your husband. And a final lesson that I hope can encourage us as we continue discussing marriage. Lesson six, think of how Jesus loved his bride. Lesson six, think of how Jesus loved his bride. If we're going to talk about husbands loving their wives and making their wives supreme, we must think about Jesus loving his bride, the church, you and me, and making us supreme through his sacrifice. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 13, 44. Turn to Matthew 13, 44. Okay, there's two short parables here. It says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Now, both of these parables are about a man who thought something was so valuable or so supreme to him that he was willing to give up everything he had to redeem it or to buy it back. And that's how Jesus felt about his bride. Spurgeon said about this parable, Jesus at the utmost cost to himself, he bought the world to gain his church, which was the treasure which he desired. Now, if you're writing your Bible, I'm going, to give you a, I'm going to give you four things that you can circle in these verses. So if you're writing your Bible, I'll try to say it slowly. And I'll, maybe I'll even, I still have my notes if you need to see it later, if you don't get to circle everything. But first, in verse 44, circle the word treasure. And in verse 46, circle the words pearl of great price. Draw a line and write me. In verse 44, circle the word treasure. And in verse 46, circle the words pearl of great price. Draw a line and write me. Second, in verse 44, circle the words amen. And in verse 45, circle the word merchant and write Jesus. 
Again, in verse 44, circle the words amen, and in verse 45, circle the word merchant, and write Jesus. And then in verse 44, circle the words sells all that he has. And in verse 46, circle the words sold all that he had, and write Philippians 2, 7, and 8, which says, Jesus made himself of no reputation, but taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In other words, Jesus gave up everything he could. He sold all that he had. He became poor for our sake so we could be made rich. And then finally, in verse 44, circle the words, buys that field. And in verse 46, circle the words, bought it and write redeemed. Now, just to let you know, I know there's another way to view these parables. In fact, if you have a study Bible, it might tell you the opposite of what I'm saying, and that instead of Jesus, it's you. It's not what Jesus has done for you. Instead, it's what we've done for Jesus. According to this view, we're the man who found the treasure. We're the man who sold everything. We're the merchant who found that treasure and then sold everything to buy it. We're the ones who bought Jesus. We're the ones who redeemed Jesus. And I disagree with this view for two reasons. First, and I just want to encourage you, when you read the Bible, don't try to be the hero. The Bible is not about you. It's not about what you've done for Christ. The Bible is about Christ and what he's done for you. Don't inject yourself into the stories. Don't start reading David and Goliath and you're David and Goliath is all the trials you overcome in your life. That's not how it works. David and Goliath is not about you and your victories. David is about Christ and the enemy that he defeated, death, on our behalf. Don't read the Bible and become the hero of the stories. Don't make the Bible all about you when we see repeatedly in the New Testament that the Old Testament is about Christ. Let it be about him. Let it exalt him. Let the Bible be about what Christ has done for you. Let him be the hero of the story. If you take this other view of these parables, then suddenly you're the hero. You sold everything. You bought Christ back. You redeemed him. You purchased your salvation. Versus the other, Romans 3.11 says, there's none who seeks after God. If according to that other interpretation of this parable, you're the one seeking after God. You're the one who's going and looking and finding that parable. In your, if you're saved, who initiated your salvation? You? No. Christ did. Think about Luke 15. When that sheep wanders off, when there's a lost sheep, does that lost sheep just suddenly say, you know what? I am lost and I am going to find my way back to the shepherd. Or the lost coin. Does the lost coin just flip up on its side and then roll back to the owner? So it's not about you finding your way back to Christ. It's about Christ coming and finding you. Now, the second reason that I reject that interpretation is it conflicts with the Old Testament. The Old Testament prefigures or foreshadows New Testament realities, and there's a great picture of this parable in the Old Testament. Let me say that one more time. The parable we just read in Matthew 13, there is a great, beautiful picture of it in the Old Testament. In verse 44, notice, and take your mind to the Old Testament and see if you can think about the account that I'm describing. In verse 44, notice, Jesus really didn't care about the field that he bought. He bought the field for the treasure or the bride that came with the field. And this field represents earth, and that's you and me, and then we become his bride. Can anyone think of an account in the Old Testament when there is an individual who bought a field, even a field he didn't care about, simply because of the treasure or bride that came with that field? What comes to mind? Boaz and Ruth. Matthew thirteen forty four parallels the book of Ruth. Now, let me ask you this. In the book of Ruth, are you Boaz or are you Ruth? 
You are Ruth. Who's Boaz? Christ. He is the Redeemer. Christ is the Redeemer. He's the one that buys the field. He's the one who does this for you. And I mention this because you could be struggling with your worth in your marriage or even your worth in your life in general. Maybe you don't feel like you're valuable. Maybe you don't feel like you have anything to offer. But that's a lie that the devil wants you to believe. The truth is, if you're a believer, the Lord sees you as a pearl of great price that he was willing to die for, to redeem. That is how valuable you are to the Lord. And here's the thing. You might not be valuable to anyone else. Maybe you couldn't think of anyone else in your life that cares about you or values you. Christ valued you enough to die for you. He valued, God valued you enough to become a man and to come from heaven to earth and the person of Jesus Christ and die on a cross in your place and take the punishment that your sins deserve because of how much he values you. In verse 44, notice the word joy. You're the treasure that Jesus found and finding you brought him joy. Now, does that harmonize with the rest of Scripture? Think about Luke 15. What is one of the main themes of Luke 15? Luke 15, if you didn't know, is the chapter that contains the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost son. And the theme of all of those parables, when the lost is found, is joy. All three parables are about the joy that the owner or the master experiences when the lost is found. And that's what it says here, that Jesus experienced joy. There was greater joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and is saved. It was so much joy, Hebrews 12, 2 says, that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That's how much Christ loves you. That's how supreme he made you in his life, willing to go to the cross joyfully to redeem you back from sin and death. So let me conclude with this. Be encouraged by the great love the Lord has for you. And as husbands, let's be inspired to love our wives with that same love, to be inspired to make our wives supreme like Jesus did with us. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for what Jesus was willing to do for us. I thank you that he found us when we were lost, that he sought us out, that he initiated our salvation, that he redeemed us, that the plan of redemption was in place before the foundations of the earth were laid and that Christ was willing to hang on that cross in our place. And I pray that as husbands, that would be our motivation as we strive to love our wives, that we wouldn't even think so much about our wives, but we would be thinking instead about what Christ and what he has done. I pray for a good night's sleep for everyone tonight and, and continue to plant these truths on each person's heart and strengthen relationships here. Bring us back refreshed and rested tomorrow, ready to hear more from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.